Brothers and sisters, good morning and welcome. Uh, you may be seated. My name is Chris Gomes, and I serve as one of the pastors here at Hagerstown Church. And so for all of you Hubtown kids ages 3 to 5, uh, you'll want to make your way now from your seats. Uh, give mom and dad hugs and kisses, but make your way to uh, Miss Micah and Miss Sarah there by the steps. Parents, if you are new to Hagerstown Church and you're wondering, well, what's, what's available, available for my children, uh, you're welcome to see Mr. Brett right over there uh, before the uh, orange sign if you want to take advantage of our safe and secure uh, check-in area. Um, our children's area is safe, so we hope that um, if needed, you will make use of that. Um, for you moms, if you just need to step away for a minute, there's a nursing mother's room, a uh, place for some calm and some quiet if, if that is what you need, but uh, we are so glad to gather this morning with you. As we begin, uh, is anybody here, and you don't have to raise your hands, but is anybody here a fan of the sport of boxing? Sort of, okay. I learned recently that there's an old saying in the sport of boxing, chop the body and the head will fall. Chop the body and the head will fall. It, kind of a graphic uh, image. But the idea behind this is that of body shots. It's a strategic technique in boxing. I'm not a boxer. You will not see me in the boxing ring. However, it's pretty fun to watch um, elite athletes compete, right? And in boxing, uh, there's, there's no exception, right? Boxing, though, is not simply about one athlete punching the other guy harder uh, or wearing their opponents out, uh, right? But uh, the idea behind uh, what skilled boxers have uh, is that they want to strategically land specific punches. They want to land specific punches, and they want to sap their opponent of their endurance. Right? The idea is not to just swing wildly, hoping that anything will land and, and maybe will hit them just hard enough. Skilled boxers are concerned with strategically landing specific punches and wearing out the other guy before their endurance wears out. With body shots, perhaps the most advantageous benefit with this specific technique is that body shots cause the opponent to become more defensive. More defensive. Literally, the opponent has to pin their arms up to defend themselves against powerful blows, which causes them to throw fewer punches. So they are literally on the defense, and they are unable to land a strategic punch against their opponent. They are literally just being wailed on by powerful punches. This morning, we are going to see the religious leaders that approached Jesus last week pinned to a corner on the defensive and unable to land a punch on Jesus. Our passage today really begins with last week's passage. Last week, Pastor Josh walked us through Mark chapter 11, verses 27 to 33. We saw that Jesus was approached by the Sanhedrin. Fancy word that is probably not very uh, popular in our vernacular, but simply, this was a group of very powerful, elite, religious men that consisted of the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. And we saw last week that this group of elite men who can carry their weight, they approached Jesus seeking to challenge Jesus' authority. They believed that by resisting his authority and challenging it, 
that they could land the hit on Christ and end this threat. But really what we saw instead is that by resisting his authority, and we'll see this fleshed out more this week, this morning, that the religious leaders, regardless of whatever weight class they might be in theologically, they are going to walk away embarrassed and defeated, unable to land a single punch. Turn with me now, if you have your Bibles with you, to Mark chapter 12. We'll be looking at uh, verses 1 through 12. If you are new to reading the Bible, Mark is the second book in the New Testament. Uh, The larger numbers are the chapter numbers. The smaller numbers are the verse numbers. Feel free to use the table of contents in the beginning of the Bible. You can find the Gospel of Mark there. We'll be in Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. Uh, If you don't have a Bible with you, might I recommend the ESV app on your smartphone. You can also follow along on the screens as I read. Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. And he began to speak to, to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it, and dug a pit for the winepress, and built a tower, and leased it to tenants, and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed, and so with many others. Some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. This is God's word. In this parable, brothers and sisters, there's really one main point that I want to elaborate on this morning, and that's this. God has providentially orchestrated both the rejection and vindication of Jesus, his beloved son. The point of this parable is this. God has providentially orchestrated both the rejection and the vindication of Jesus, his beloved son. What we see in this parable is that the religious leaders may have rejected Jesus and his authority, But in God's providence, Jesus is the chosen cornerstone, integral to holding up the whole structure for the praise and glory of God. The leaders have rejected Jesus because they hate him. Their animosity and their hatred of Christ is in full display. Jesus is fully aware, and Jesus shows that in this parable. They have rejected Christ because they hate him, but God in his sovereign, wise providence will vindicate his beloved son, and he will accomplish all 
His holy purposes. From our text, we will draw four specific observations. Starting with our first observation, uh, unworthy tenants, verses 1 through 8. When we start with this parable, uh, if you've been with us in this gospel of Mark, then you're probably pretty familiar with the fact that Jesus was not a novice when it comes to using parables in his teaching ministry. He used them frequently to uh, teach subtly and to teach uh, and highlight significant spiritual truths about the nature of God's kingdom and God's purposes. And while the disciples had instances of difficulty in understanding what these parables meant, you can see Mark chapter 4, verse 10, they literally asked Jesus, what did this parable mean? Right? Here in Mark chapter 12, there is no question what Jesus is getting at with this parable. There's no confusion whatsoever. The religious leaders, not the disciples, they're, they're not the ones in uh, focus here. The religious leaders knew Jesus aimed this parable at them. Verse 12, they perceived he had, the, he had told the parable against them, so they left him and went away. The scene opens, in last week's passage, with these uh, religiously elite leaders audaciously challenging Jesus' authority. And here in our text this morning, the scene ends with embarrassment and defeat for these men. So beginning in verse 1, Jesus began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. Notice here in this parable, Jesus used a common economic practice of uh, landowners who lease their land to tenant farmers, and he uses this imagery to take aim at the religious leaders, specifically for their failure of leading God's people. Notice in the opening verse here, Jesus clearly says that the owner of this vineyard has done all of the necessary work first. He planted the vineyard, he put the fence around it, he dug the pit for the wine press, he built the tower, and he leased it to the tenants. Reaping the benefits of all of his hard work and likely his riches, he is now going to take time to rest and go into another country. The tenants, though, the characters here in this parable, they had no rights to this land. They were not entitled to farming the land. Rather, they were permitted to farm this land. The owner of the land was the sovereign. The tenants, they were just simply occupants of this land. They were not the owners. They were not the heirs. And as occupants of the land, they were subject to the terms and conditions of the owner of the vineyard. What he says goes. And when it came to, uh, for the owner of the land to reap the fruits of his vineyard, he sent a servant to collect what was due. And notice, friends, how these wicked tenants treated the landowner's servants. In verse 3, they seized him, they beat him, and they sent him away empty-handed. Many of us probably would never behave the way that these tenants have behaved, physically grabbing somebody, embarrassing them, beating them, and then sending them away beaten and ashamed. This, friends, was a severe form 
of disrespect to the servant. That much is obvious. But what may not be as obvious is that this was also an extreme form of disrespect against the landowner. They sent the servant back to the owner, beaten and empty-handed. The empty hands of the servants, what do you think these empty hands would represent? It's how these tenants view what the landowner is worth. You do not deserve anything. We do not want to give you what you are owed. Right? So in this very brief image, we see a, a snapshot of the hearts of the tenants against the landowner. They sent the servant back to the owner, beaten and empty-handed. But the landowner, though, takes special note here, he appears to be a patient man, one who is slow to anger. After the first servant returned beaten and empty-handed, the landowner, he sent another servant to collect some of the fruit of the vineyard. And this time in verse 4, we see that the wicked tenants, they struck the servant on the head and treated him shamefully. So it's as if physically beating the man is not enough. Now we're going to compound the shame by treating him poorly and mistreating this man who's simply just doing his job. Right? He's representing the landowner and he's coming to e e execute the will of the landowner to uh, with withdraw from the tenants the fruit that is owed. So as the landowner's representative, not only is the servant then treated shamefully, but the landowner by proxy is treated shamefully. And so here, with the second, ten, uh, second servant, we see that the disrespect shown to the servant and the landowner has now escalated. Right? And again, the landowner, being patient and slow to anger, sent a third servant. So the first servant they beat, the second servant they struck, this one, the wicked tenants killed, which is really the ultimate form of escalation, right? First they beat, second they struck, this one, now they killed. Verse 5 tells us, and so with many others, some they beat, some they killed. This begs the question, does the landowner not get the idea? He is sending servant after servant after servant. Some are being beaten, some are being killed, all of them are being mistreated and not treated in the way that they should, and the landowner is not reaping the fruit of his investment. And instead, he's actually experiencing a net loss, right? He is losing servants. And if any of you are small business owners, you know how difficult it is to find good help. Right? He is experiencing a net loss. The tenants obviously hate him. They rebel against him. They transgress against him. They literally violently oppose him. They treat his representatives shamefully seeking to harm them. And by their actions, these tenants have demonstrated that they completely reject the landowner and his rule over his land. The tenants are a vivid illustration of man's sinful nature at enmity with God. Enmity with God, hatred of God, rebellion against God, transgression of God's holy law and will, violent opposition to his goodwill and holy purposes. But despite the wicked behavior of these unworthy hired hands, this landowner remains patient and slow to anger even though he is receiving net negatives. You might even say that this landowner is rather merciful. 
And I'd ask you, friends, who does this landowner sound like? Well, I think the landowner sounds an awful lot like the Lord himself, specifically described in Exodus 34, verse 6. Now, Exodus here records, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is the Lord. We read a similar description of this in Nehemiah chapter 9 last week in our church-wide Bible reading plan. And just as an aside, if you are looking to find some help and some encouragement and some biblical community to help you to read the Bible and to meditate on God's Word on a regular basis, consider joining a discipleship group. That is literally what uh, these groups are for. Grab a Connect card, fill it out. You can come see me or Pastor Josh um, at the end of the service. But a discipleship group will really help you to read the Bible. Reading the Bible, we see the Lord is a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This specific description of God is used frequently in the scriptures. And brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, if you have turned from your sin, if you have repented of your sin and placed your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ, No matter how messy or how broken, in Christ, your life is a testimony to God's character. While we have sinned against God and rebelled against his rule, in Jesus Christ, God has been merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness to you. Your life, no matter how messy or broken, in Christ, is a testimony to this good and perfect, gracious character of God. And I would ask you, do you believe this? Do you believe this description of God? Or does your life reflect that you view God to be merciless, cruel, quick to anger, and meager in love and faithfulness? I think in God's providence, this reminder in the scriptures of his character is repeated so many times because we are so prone to forget. One of the many reasons that we gather as a church to read scripture and to pray together and to sing together is to help one another remember what is true of God and his promises to us. That the Lord is a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. How can you help your fellow church members remember how God has been merciful and gracious to them? Take some time this week and reflect on that. How can you help your fellow church members remember how God has been merciful and gracious to them? Pray and ask the Lord for wisdom that you may encourage your fellow brother or sister in Christ and spur them on towards delighting in Christ and loving their neighbors. Whether you believe it or not, you and I need each other to remember who God is. Doesn't matter how mature we are, doesn't matter how much of the, scripture we, the scriptures we have memorized, doesn't matter how thick our theology textbooks might be that we read for pleasure, You and I, regardless of age, regardless of race, regardless of which way we part our hair, 
You and I need each other to remember who God is. As one pastor put it, memory spawns desire. Memory spawns desire. The more we help one another remember who God is and his character, the more we can help one another spawn desire for God. Memory spawns desire. Like the Lord, the landowner in this parable has demonstrated himself to be merciful and gracious, slow to anger. He's not quick to litigate doesn't grab his attorneys and send them to crush them with, uh, uh, with uh, uh, legalese. He's gracious. He's slow to anger. In one sense, this landowner was extending opportunity after opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to the tenants that they would repent of their wickedness. Opportunity after opportunity. Repentance, however, does not seem to be what the tenant had in mind. Look at verse 6. Jesus says about the landowner, he had still one another, one other, excuse me, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. Doesn't appear that the fruit of the vineyard is what is of primary importance. The tenants have come back empty-handed. More importantly, they've come back empty-handed with respect for the landowner. Now by sending the son, surely these tenants would recognize who he is. He's not just another hired hand. This is the son. This is the beloved son. And they would know that the beloved son is the rightful heir, not just to the land, but all the produce of the land, all the riches that comes from the land, all of the positive investment returns that comes from the land, surely they will respect him knowing who he is. The landowner was keenly aware that every single servant has been disrespected, treated shamefully, and some were even beaten and killed. And you would think that this guy's a smart guy. He's probably wealthy. He's living in another country, reaping the benefits of his investments. He has people working for him probably has an idea of how the world works. And not only that, he probably knows how to make things work for his advantage and his benefit. Now, with his servants coming back and some not coming back at all, you would think that he's also aware of some level of risk, right? Both in terms of investment, all investments have some level of risk, right? But also, risk in the form of disrespect, shameful treatment, physical beating, and even murder. And so what does he do? Takes the ultimate risk, and he sends his beloved son to the wicked tenants. What does this story sound like? You don't have to ask out loud, but I do want you to reflect on and ask, what does this story sound like? I think this experience, uh, even though it's in the form of a parable, it sounds a lot like the gospel. It sounds a lot like Romans chapter 5 Where in verse 8, Paul says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, rather than quickly crushing us, God sent his beloved son to die for us. What risk has the Lord taken to send his beloved son that he would be killed by wicked hands. 
seeing now that the son was sent by the father, the true representative of the father, the rightful heir of the land, look at how these wicked tenants responded. Verse 7, but those tenants said to one another, literally, they're scheming together, they get in a little uh, evil huddle, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. So, an evil huddle, they scheme together, they want to kill the son and steal what is his. Right? If it wasn't clear by the way that they have treated the servants thus far, it should be very clear now that these wicked tenants hate the landowner. There is no uh, neutrality with them. There is no feelings of uh, just quiet disgruntledness. They hate him. They hate his son. They hate everything about him. They hate the way he looks. They hate the way he talks. They hate the way he sounds. They hate the way he smells. They hate everything about him. They hate his son. They hate what he loves. They are in violent opposition against that which the landowner supremely values. Here with the coming of the son, mistreating the servants would would not lead to a big enough payday. Killing the heir, now that's their ticket to steal the inheritance. They would steal what is rightfully his. They would kill the son, take his riches. With the coming of the beloved son, we are shown that they had opportunity after opportunity to repent and to respond to the landowner appropriately as he ought to be responded to. But instead, they killed the beloved son and they threw the body out of the vineyard. So he's not even given a proper burial. He is literally taken, he's killed, his body is just tossed aside which that in and of itself is just such disrespect if the murder itself was not disrespectful, right? But again, let me ask you, what does this imagery sound like? Does this imagery sound familiar to you? Where else in the scriptures have we seen a group of men who worked the fields, but they hated and conspired against and seized and desired to kill the beloved son? Well, think back to Joseph and his brothers back in Genesis 37. Genesis 37, verses 18 and 19, the brothers, they saw him, Joseph, from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer, come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Language starting to sound familiar, right? They see him, they hate him, they connive together to kill him. And what do they want to do? They just want to toss him aside. Verse 23, so when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, shameful, disrespectful, the robe of many colors that he wore. The brothers hated him. They were jealous of him. They hated him. Verse 24, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty there was no water in it. The imagery in the life of Joseph being conspired against by his brothers, 
and the imagery seen in this parable, the landowner's son being conspired against by the tenants, they share a lot of similarities, don't they? Both sons are beloved by the father. They're both hated by wicked men. They're both treated shamefully. They're both conspired against. And they are both desired to be killed. They do not have either Joseph or the landowner's son's flourishing in mind. They desire that these two men be put to death. We hate them. We want them gone. Lots of similarities. Joseph's brothers conspired to kill him, and they left Joseph, the beloved son, for dead. I'd encourage you to take time this week. Read the story of Joseph's life in Genesis 37, uh, all the way through uh, Genesis chapter 50. And notice specifically how God was providentially orchestrating the affairs of even Joseph's life, as miserable as it was, to be hated and to be cast away in order that the lives of many would be saved. Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, Joseph in his grace, spoiler alert, if you've never read the end of Genesis, ends with Joseph in Egypt, and he's super powerful, and the brothers are literally starving because there's this massive global famine. Joseph literally is the second in command of the greatest empire uh, on the face of the earth at that time. And when he sees the, the brothers here uh, literally begging and pleading, Joseph tells them this, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. What is now being done. Notice Joseph in Genesis 50 verse 20, and I know my sermon's not in the book of Genesis, but there's so much richness here. God didn't just intend for good to be accomplished. It is now being done. God's intentions were actually being accomplished. And what was God's purpose? It was the saving of many lives. Our God is not an imaginary God that just sits up in the clouds and sometimes hears our prayers and our wishes and our dreams and says, eh. Our God is one who actually accomplishes his purposes. Our God accomplishes the purposes he has for you, for me, for us. They're not just words that we throw into the air to an imaginary God our God accomplishes all his holy will. All right, let me move out of Genesis 50 and back into Mark 12 now because I'll preach a, a second separate sermon if I don't get back, to, get back on track here. One commentator on this parable, he said this. This was really helpful for me as I was reading this. Essentially then, the parable of the tenants rehearses the history of old covenant Israel. God called a people out of slavery in Egypt, planting them as a vineyard to bear fruit for him, leaving them under the care of tenants, kings, priests, and other leaders. Periodically, the Lord sent prophets to investigate the vineyard, but as a rule, the tenants left in charge rejected the prophets. Rather than destroy the nation, however, God decided to send one last emissary, his son. But the son would be received with even more hatred than the prophets. The tenants killed him in an attempt to steal the owner's inheritance. So, how do we understand this parable? How do we understand the characters represented here? Who do these characters, who are they supposed to be? Well, 
I think it's very clear based on how the religious leaders reacted and as we see images in this parable, it seems pretty clear that tenants represented the religious leaders. The wicked tenants represented the religious leaders. The many servants sent time after time, giving the wicked tenants an opportunity to repent, they represented the Old Testament prophets who representatively came and spoke on behalf of the Lord. And in just a uh, few short days, we would see that the beloved son whom the tenants killed, the beloved son represents Jesus. And we'll see that in just a few short days in uh, Mark's gospel, what Jesus tells in a parable will actually come to fruition. Jesus, the beloved son, will die at the hands of wicked men. But what they meant for evil, God intended for good, so that all who would look to Jesus by faith may be saved. Jesus will be rejected, even to the point of death. But in his providence, the Lord will vindicate Jesus through his resurrection. If, you, if you're uh, here this morning and you don't identify as a Christian, maybe you've come with a friend or a family member and they have been inviting you to join them in coming to church, we are glad you're here. We are very happy to have you. You are welcome here. I do want to help you to spend your investment of your time well this morning. Your time spent with us, if you don't identify as a Christian, your time spent with us would be spent best if you understand who we believe Jesus is. And if you are a Christian, your time spent here with us would also be spent best if you understand who Christians believe Jesus is. Jesus is the beloved son who was killed in our place. Christians do not believe that God is some sort of cosmic and indifferent being casually watching the events of the world unfold, incapable of governing the affairs of humanity. Nor does the Bible teach that God is somehow this reactionary being who only reacts in limited ways when he is somehow caught off guard by human actions. That is not who God is. The Bible reveals that God is perfectly holy, sovereign, just, and righteous. And this wonderful God, this wonderfully and perfectly holy, sovereign, just, and gracious and righteous God created us in his image and in his likeness that we would reflect his glory, that our souls would delight in him and live in joyful obedience to him in all of our ways, not in some of our ways, in every single sphere of our lives, that we would live in joyful obedience to God, reflecting his glory. Christians also recognize and we don't sugarcoat this. We don't try to hide it under the rug. We recognize humanity has a sin problem. Man has sinned against God. We have broken his commands and have transgressed against his holy will. Our sinful natures do not make us indifferent towards God. In our sinful nature, we oppose God at every turn. Pastor Josh last week uh, talked about the idea of total depravity, 
Sin has corrupted us. Our sinful natures do not make us indifferent towards God or even indifferent towards one another. In our sinfulness, we are at enmity with God. But the good news, and this is what Christianity is a religion of, a religion of good news, is that in God's great love, God in His grace sent His own beloved Son, Jesus, who lived a perfect life that you and I have failed to do, and He died on the cross as a substitute for us, taking the punishment for the sins of all who will ever turn and trust in Him by His grace. Jesus rose from the dead showing that God had accepted His sacrifice and His wrath against those who would trust in Jesus that his wrath against our sins has been exhausted. Now, God calls on us to repent of our sins and to place our faith and our trust in Christ for the complete forgiveness of our sins and to receive a new and eternal life with God. There's a saying in our home, old is better. But not when it comes to our old life and the new life that is offered in Christ. This new eternal life that, get, that God grants to us by faith in His Son is much better than the life of self-dependence that we have lived on thinking that our righteousness is sufficient for others to respect us and even for God to respect us. God grants to us grace and forgiveness in Christ. And if this is the first time you have heard this thing called the gospel, Maybe it's not what you expected, or maybe you've heard Christian things before, but you've never heard this good news. Uh, please stick around af after the end of the service. Uh, uh, come talk to uh, myself, Pastor Josh, or even the person that you're visiting with. We would love to talk to you more about our need for God and this good news that he has given to us in Jesus. The gospel is good news, and it begins with the rejection of Christ. But moving on to our second observation in verse 9, we see an unsettling indictment. In verse 9, Jesus asks, What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. So hearing this, the religious leaders, they likely would have had to have been troubled by the unsettling imagery that is found in the parable. So the landowner is going to come that's not unsettling already. And he's not just going to come and watch and see what's been done and say, woe is me, my vineyard has been taken. He is going to come and he is going to destroy the wicked tenants and he's going to take his vineyard and he is going to give it to others. The imagery that's painted in this parable is similar to imagery painted in Isaiah chapter 5. You don't have to turn there, but I'd recommend that you, I'd encourage you to uh, reflect on Isaiah 5. In Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, Here's what Isaiah records. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O oh, inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? 
And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah and his pleasant planting are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold bloodshed for righteousness, but behold an outcry. Here in Isaiah 5, the vineyard represented the people of God. The people of God, just like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, were meant to walk with God and bear good fruit. Fruit like righteousness, holiness, love of God, love of neighbor. Fruit that would set them apart from the nations as they worshipped the one true God. But time and time again, the fruit that God's people would bear was bad fruit. Instead of fresh grapes, good fruit, the vineyard owner in Isaiah 5, which is the Lord, he finds that all that was born was wild grapes, bad fruit. You can't make good wine or grape juice with nasty grapes, right? So what's this vineyard owner going to do in Isaiah chapter 5 that's only producing bad fruit? Well, Isaiah 5, verses 5 and 6 simply tells he would destroy the vineyard. This is the imagery that the religious elite, having memorized most of the Old Testament scriptures, would have immediately come to mind. This is what would have conjured up in their minds as Jesus told them this parable. What will the vineyard owner do? So, was Jesus threatening to destroy the people of God? No. Jesus came to save his people. And in Jesus' parable, instead of destroying the vineyard, it is the wicked tenants who are to be condemned. He will destroy, he will, uh, destroy the tenants and he will give the vineyard to others. So at the end of this parable, Jesus in Mark 12 verse 9, he lays out an unsettling indictment against the irresponsible and unworthy religious leaders of Israel in their failure to shepherd God's people. The vineyard owner, what will he do? He will come and he will destroy the tenants and he will take his vineyard and he will give it to others. The time for patience and mercy has come to an end. The vineyard owner is not going to settle for negative returns on his investment. Not only that, the vineyard owner is not going to stand for injustice. He will destroy the tenants, which is what they deserve, in their open hostility and animosity and unyielding antipathy against God. He will also not just destroy the tenants, he's going to give the vineyard to others. So again, Isaiah chapter uh, 56, not Isaiah chapter 5, but Isaiah 56, in Isaiah 56 verse 7, the Lord says this, These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. So, why do I quote Isaiah 56? Because give to others is a reference of Jesus to the nations. I don't know about you, but I am not ethnically Jewish. 
So the promises and the hope that the Old Testament scriptures gave to the people of Israel was not promised to me. I am a proud Gentile. But in Christ and in his new covenant, by faith in Jesus, the promises of God are no longer exclusive to one ethnic people group. It is now generously and liberally to all, including the Gentiles. So how does God fulfill the covenant that he made with Abraham in Genesis chapters 12 and 15 that from Abraham the nations would be blessed, from the seed of Abraham will come a king that will bless the nations? Jesus Christ. The vineyard owner is going to give his vineyard, literally, the one who owns the temple, who suddenly and quickly came into the temple, he is going to give the vineyard to the nations. In Jesus and his new covenant, the promises of God and the blessings of God are now available to us. Looking at verses 10 and 11, we'll see our third observation here. So we see unworthy tenants. We see an unsettling indictment. But Chris, where is the good news here? Friends, pay very close attention because in our third observation, we will see unwavering providence. Unwavering providence. Jesus uh, says in verses 10 to 11, have you not read this scripture? Reading this verse, I'm going to stop right here and add one quick comment. Jesus saying, have you not read this scripture, challenged me in my lack of reading scripture. It would appear, friends, that Jesus takes Bible reading really seriously. Because when he's met with unyielding antipathy and animosity and tension and enmity, what does he say? Well, creatively, he uses a very strong parable, imagery that is drawn from various parts of the scriptures. But then he says, have you not read the scripture? So he tells religious elites, hey, don't you know? Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus quoting scripture is an example for us to read the Bible. And you can read the Bible. One of the core attributes of scripture is its clarity. The scriptures are understandable to those who have faith, to those who have spiritual eyes. Not only are the scriptures necessary, not only are the scriptures sufficient, not only are the scriptures finally authoritative, but the scriptures are understandable. So if you are in Christ, cherish the word of God. Delight in the works of God. Study the works of God by studying the word of God. One of the ways that we say it here is that the word matters. The word matters here. The word clearly mattered to the Lord. And apparently, it didn't really matter much to the religious leaders. Have you not read this scripture? It's almost as if Jesus is saying this in an uh, exasperated tone. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders have rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. This was not an accident. This was not a, uh, an afterthought. This was not a, oh, Here's how I fix this problem. No, this was the Lord's doing. And Jesus quoting the scripture is no accident. He purposefully quoted Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23, which is a messianic psalm. This brief 
quoting of this messianic psalm can be its own sermon. But I'm not going to preach that sermon today. We are going to look at the fact that the stone that the builders have rejected has become the precious cornerstone. And not only that, it was the Lord's marvelous doing. Not just the Lord's general doing. It is marvelous that God has done this. Jesus' life, ministry, death, and resurrection were not God's plan B to man's problem of sin. It was not plan B. This was God's plan, period. Not an afterthought. Not a, uh, a, a, in case of emergency, break glass here. God did not scramble to figure out a contingency plan after sin had spoiled his good creation. The gospel is the Lord's own doing. The gospel is God's marvelous plan. If you are bored with Jesus, look at the gospel. It is marvelous that Jesus would die in our place when we deserved death. Jesus was rejected in our place when we deserved to be rejected. Have your friends at work rejected you because you are a Christian? Friends, Jesus is intimately aware and familiar with rejection. God himself was rejected by the own work of his hands. It is marvelous that while we are the ones that deserve to be rejected, Jesus was rejected for our sin as our substitute. And he didn't say, okay, I've done 95% of the work of being rejected. Now you go do 5% of the work of being rejected and then we'll meet there and then life will be better. No, he was fully rejected to the point of death. Who would do that for us? Who would place themselves in a place of rejection for you? If you were at work and you made a costly mistake that you knew is going to cost you your job and your livelihood, your family is now going to suffer, your resume is not going to carry you into another place of employment, who at your place of work would say, you know what, I know that you made this mistake, but I'm going to take the punishment for you instead. I'll take the consequence of losing my job and my livelihood, the flourishing of my own family, even though the consequence actually belongs to you because I didn't do anything wrong. I'll take your blame and I'll take your place as a substitute and even though the consequences should be yours alone, I am going to give you my 13 employee of the month plaques. You will receive my blessing and my benefits and I will take your rejection in your place. Who would do that? I work in corporate America and I know there is not a single person in my department that would do that for me. In fact, if I would get in trouble, my coworkers would take a step back and say, we told Chris not to do that. Who would take your place of rejection? So, why is the gospel marvelous? Why do we talk about the marvelousness of Jesus? It's because Jesus died and rose again. And if you place your faith and your trust in him, then by God's grace, you can be accepted by God and never be rejected. So everyone else might reject you. Those you love the most may say, "Mm, nope, not anymore, I'm taking my love back. Those around you may reject you and say, we are not going to stand with you. By faith in Christ, the Lord of the universe and the God of all providence accepts you because Jesus was rejected. The stone the builders have rejected has become the precious cornerstone. 
not just another rock, right? Not just another piece of construction equipment that's gonna hold the walls together. He has become the precious cornerstone. These religious leaders hearing this, probably their throats are getting dry. They're probably needing to uh, take a gulp, right? Well, their uh, theological noviceness is only expanding because now they would have remembered Isaiah 28, their theological noviceness in comparison to Jesus, I mean. They would have remembered Isaiah 28. In Isaiah 28, 16, and it would appear that uh, Jesus is uh, very familiar with Isaiah because so much of his, uh, his condemnation and his uh, prophetic teaching is being drawn from these few verses in Isaiah. Isaiah 28, verse 16. Behold, I am the one who has laid a, as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Uh, if any of you are homeowners, uh, right now is probably the best time for you to sell your house, apparently, because the housing market is really hot. But if you bought your home, you probably walked around the house, right? And you inspected the foundation, well, if the house was you know, slanted, and, but the ground was flat, you probably wouldn't have bought that house. And if you did, why? But God has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. There is no doubt that this is the, the right foundation upon which God's purposes will be accomplished. But in their self-righteousness and hatred of Jesus, the leaders have rejected him. And Peter says the same thing to the Jewish council in Acts chapter 4, verse 11. He says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Wow, what brazenness. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, which has become the cornerstone. Peter, later in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10, I won't read the whole passage for the sake of time, but this is fantastically beautiful. Peter says to the church, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, I'm just going to go ahead and read the verse because God's word is better than mine. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Friends, do you believe in Jesus? Then you will not be put to shame. Your coworkers, your family members might even put you to shame, but God will not put you to shame. God in his graciousness will accept you in Christ. Now, back to God's word. Verse seven, so the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become a cornerstone. Verse eight, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That is you. That is us as the church. I grew up a brown-skinned man in a very racially tense area post 
my race and ethnicity was regularly made fun of. I was regularly told to go back to where I came from. I was regularly told to go back to the insufficient, disgusting land that I've come from. I won't, uh, I'll spare you the terms that were used, but I was seen to be uh, despicable. I was seen to be uh, one from a, uh, a race that could be thrown away. But friends, in Christ, look at what I found. And this has been given to me. I have not found it myself by my own strength and will. I'm now a member of a chosen race. Christ's people. I'm a member of the church. A royal priesthood. You and I are not disgusting. We are members of a royal priesthood. We are members of a holy nation. America is great. God's people is so much better. God's people is so much better. You know why? Because the experiment of America will one day end, but God's church will never end. A people for his own possession. And guess what? The church is not an experiment. The church is a people for his own possession. Why? So that we may proclaim the excellencies, not of an experiment, not of a temporary people, but of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once we were not a people, but now you are God's people. Friend, this means that you are not worthless. This means that you are not void of dignity. This means that you are God's. You may not be anybody else's, but you're God's. And you have received mercy. The world is not quick to mercy. Regardless how much virtue signaling that our culture might want to do, our world is not quick to mercy. Our world is quick to judgment. But we have received mercy. Because Jesus was rejected in our place, we are now being built up into a spiritual house as the church, a holy priesthood. Because Jesus was rejected in our place, we can now offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God in Christ. Because Jesus was rejected, the church is a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. A possession that he will not lose. A possession that he will not receive negative returns on. This is not a possession that requires FDIC insurance. This is a possession that is securely and firmly held in God's hand. So if you, saint, feel as if God has abandoned you, or that the world has rejected you, so clearly God must have rejected you, no, you are securely and firmly Standing, maybe kneeling, maybe being dragged on the sure foundation that God has laid, Jesus Christ, the precious cornerstone. Regardless of how weak your grip on Christ might be, Jesus is your sure foundation. And he is not one who is known to drop things. He will not drop you. Jesus is a living stone, rejected by men, but chosen and precious in the sight of God. Friends, this is true of the church. We are rejected by men, but we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. We are precious in the sight of God. If you hate yourself, God does not view you this way. God sees you as precious. Precious in the sight are the death of his saints. You are precious in the sight of God. Jesus is also a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. There are people who are going to hear your proclamation of the gospel and say, ew, 
they're going to say, no, I don't think so. I don't want that. I'm going to pass. They might say something like, that's good for you. I'm glad you found that for yourself, but I don't need that. Yes, they do. And you know why? Because they are spiritually stumbling over Christ. And what happens when you stumble? If you're like me, you fall. You fall. You don't graciously pick yourself back up or catch yourself. You stumble and fall, and it hurts. By rejecting Jesus, the cornerstone, the religious leaders now, all they can do is stumble. Regardless of how ornate their garments might be, all they do is stumble. He's a rock of offense to all those who will reject him. But to those who would trust in Christ, he is the precious cornerstone. From this psalm, Jesus identified himself as both the Messiah who would save his people and the stone the builders have rejected. He acknowledges, just like the landowner's son, God the son would be killed, but God's providential purposes would not be thwarted. Friends, let me say that again. Even though God the Son would be killed, God's providential purposes would not be thwarted. God has providentially orchestrated both the rejection and vindication of Jesus, his beloved Son. His providence for the church and for you, individual Christian, is unwavering. It cannot be thwarted. God's providence for you is unfailing. It is unwavering. You may stand in a boat in the water of life and the waves are crashing against you, but guess what? While the waters are crashing and throwing you side to side, God's providence for you is unwavering. And you may be asking, well, what exactly is providence? I've been to Providence, Rhode Island, but I never really paid much attention to what what that word means. Well, credit here goes to John Piper, If sovereignty is God's right to do all that he pleases, and the scriptures teach just that, then providence in the scriptures is God's wise and purposeful sovereignty. Providence in the scriptures is God's wise and purposeful sovereignty. Providence is his sovereignty with a trajectory. Sovereignty aiming to accomplish all his holy and wise will and purposes. Piper again, he says this, God's providence carries his plans into action, guides all things towards his ultimate goal, and leads to the final consummation. In this parable, although Jesus predicts his death, right, and that sounds like that's going to be the end of the story, well, the hero dies, what are we going to do now? While Jesus predicts his death at the hands of the wicked leaders, we learn of God's providence. We learn that God providentially governs, that he providentially saves, that God providentially preserves, and God providentially renders judgment. So, fourth observation. What what do the religious leaders do now? Verse 12. And they were seeking to arrest him. They just don't get it. Here here Jesus is saying, uh, look, Mr. Religious Elite, you find pleasure in the scriptures. The scriptures are telling you that I am the rejected stone and the chosen cornerstone. And what do the religious leaders want to do? They want to seek to arrest him. But they feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Well, I can't win this argument. I guess I'll just turn around and walk away now. The religious leaders initiated this horribly embarrassing encounter, and when they sought to end the threat Jesus posed to them, but then this encounter proved they were no match for Jesus. They were no match for Jesus. 
They couldn't beat Jesus theologically, so they wanted to arrest him. They f- but they feared how the people would respond. What charges could they indict Jesus with? They couldn't. There are no justified charges to, in, to charge Jesus with. What are they going to say? Well, that Jewish rabbi said some mean things about us. Rome, arrest him. That's not going to work. There are no justifiable reasons for Jesus to be arrested. But their animosity towards Jesus remains undeterred. They have rejected Jesus and his authority, so it doesn't matter what Jesus says next. It won't matter what Jesus will say to them because they have rejected him wholly. Not wholly, H-O-L-Y, wholly, completely. In totality, they have rejected Jesus. They hate him. They have rejected him because the religious leaders, for them, the enemy was not sin and idol worship and profaning God and doing that which is displeasing to God. Those things were not the enemy to life and flourishing. Jesus was the enemy. The lines have been drawn. By rejecting Jesus, they have rejected God's word. They have rejected his purposes. By rejecting him, they've rejected God's providence. They've rejected God himself. They boldly approached him and challenged him, but body shot after body shot, they have left beaten, broken, embarrassed, and defeated. So they left him and went away. Friends, Jesus is good with doctrine. Jesus is good with the word. We are of no comparison to Jesus' theological, scriptural, doctrinal acumen. We can rest in Christ knowing he is strong, though we are weak. Now, when we hear this parable, friends, what are we to do? What are we to do? Hearing this parable, understanding Jesus to be both the rejected stone and the precious cornerstone, what then? What do we do? Well, let me give you two suggestions, and I'm way beyond my time, but two quick suggestions. First, submit to Christ's authority. Submit to Christ's authority. By faith, by faith in Jesus, who has proven himself to be worthy, proven himself to be faithful, submit to Jesus wholly and to his rule. Don't make the same foolish mistake these religious leaders made by resisting Jesus' authority so that they could keep some semblance of their own. Is there an area of your life that you are actively trying to keep from submitting to Christ so that you can govern your own life under your own authority, under your own pretenses? Is there something in the scriptures that has clearly been made known to you that you just don't like? And so you just want to ignore it. You don't want to talk about it. You're not going to address it. Friend, don't resist Jesus' authority. Submit to him. Resisting Christ's authority and settling for our own self-righteousness is an exhaustingly foolish thing to do. But because of his grace and rich mercy, there is greater joy and freedom in submission to Jesus than in self-dependence. Jesus says so as much in John 15. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. Verse 4. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by, by, by itself. It must remain in the vine. Remain in Christ. Abide in Jesus. Submit to his authority. 
uh, John 15, verse eight. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Do you want to bear fruit in your life? Abide in Jesus. Bearing fruit is not the result of us gritting our teeth to the point that we start to wear our teeth down. Bearing fruit in the life of the Christian is done so by abiding in Jesus. Now, secondly, rest in God's providence. In Jesus, God's wise and purposeful sovereignty is going to accomplish all of God's holy will. And that is good news for us. That is good news for Christians. All of his plans and all of his goals in his providence will lead you to be conformed to the image of Jesus, the chosen and precious cornerstone. If you are frustrated with how slow your sanctification has been, friend, in God's providence, he will lead you to be conformed to the image of Jesus. That work in his providence will be completed. God's gracious providence will sustain you and preserve you as you navigate through the challenges of this life, waiting for eternity with Jesus. In both the big things and the little, the good and the evil, the expected and the unexpected, the everyday things, and even the extraordinary, our God, Christian, our God, in his gracious providence, is working all things for our good and according to the counsel of his perfectly good will that is yours in Christ. So church, let us submit ourselves then to the wonderful, sustaining, governing, life-giving, sin-killing, joy-producing, and soul-preserving authority of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in your mercy you saved us. God, we thank you that in your mercy you have demonstrated to us your kindness and your goodness, your gentleness and your graciousness to save us from the penalty of our sin. God, we ask now that by your grace, by the power of your Holy Spirit and according to your word, that we would not be like these wicked tenants resisting Christ, but Lord, that we would be uh, coming to Jesus, the living stone, being built up into a spiritual house, submitting to his wonderful authority over our lives, and resting in his wonderful providence. Would you please, Lord, lead your church to rest in you. Lord, bless us now as we meditate on your word uh, today, this afternoon, the rest of the week. Lord, help us to rejoice in Christ, the chosen precious cornerstone who has uh, delivered to us a marvelous gospel. We commit this time to you now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.